Alrighty, well, welcome. Good to see you all this morning. We're in First Thessalonians, chapter five. If you're visiting with us. We've been in this book for 28 messages, and so we're just continuing our time in in God's Word this morning. And we've talked about quite a bit, so you'll have to catch up. <clears throat> Not during the service, though. I don't want you to listen to this. <laughs> But uh, this morning, uh, we begin a, a wonderful new kind of closing section of, of 1 Thessalonians. This is written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica. And we're looking at this section that runs basically from verse 12 all the way down to verse 22. And then he concludes the, the book with some closing comments. And Paul here is speaking to uh, Christians, clearly. And he's talking to those believers who have put their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ as their one and only Savior for the forgiveness of their sins. And I've entitled this kind of section, Blameless Living in the Church. Blameless Living in the Church. I think we'd all agree at times our behavior, our personal behavior, needs an adjustment. Our personal behavior needs to change. I don't know if I'm the only one, but I know I do, just talk to my wife. But uh, there's one thing that will change it. And as a believer, especially when you realize that one day the Lord is returning and you will see him face to face. He will return to this earth and living in anticipation of God's return, Christ's return. If a person really believes that Jesus Christ is his Lord and Savior and a person really believes that he's returning to earth... I believe that fact and that fact alone will really radically change your life. It will change your daily life. It will change your daily habits, whether they be work habits or living habits, whatever it might be. Now, if you've been with us here for these studies, you know that we've taken kind of a prolonged study through the past uh, chapter, chapter 4.13 up to 5.11, and that's because it has to do with the return of Christ. It has to do with those events that talk about Christ returning. First of all, in the rapture for his church, the snatching away of the church from the earth, that will happen. There's nothing that has to take place before that. It's we call it the imminent return of Christ. There's no prophecy that has to be fulfilled. It could happen right now. It could happen five minutes from now. But one day, Christ says that he will return for his church. And he will return in the clouds, the Bible says, and we will be caught up to be with him. All the church-age saints will be caught up with him. And those who are dead in Christ, those who have died in Christ, will be raptured out of, will be brought out of the grave. They'll be resurrected. Their body will be resurrected and they will meet their soul, which will be coming back with the Lord. And they will, we will all be glorified in our glorified state. And we will never leave the presence of the Lord ever again. Amen? Amen? We won't have to worry about anything. Even though he's coming back, and that's the second thing that we talked about, not only the rapture of the church where Jesus comes down in the clouds and he catches the church up to be with him, but he also, his return to judge the ungodly, which is called the day of the Lord, when the Lord returns with his saints. And uh, this time begins basically after the rapture of the church. Okay, and there's a seven-year period here on earth, we call it the seven-year tribulation. And the first half, the three and a half years is, is bad, but it's not too bad. But the, the last three and a half years is really bad. 
And the reason the first three and a half years is not too bad is because you have someone who would proclaim himself to be uh, a world leader, and he will benefit. It will look like he will benefit everybody. Everybody would just fall in love with this guy. And even Israel will put their faith, their trust in this man. But at the three and a half year mark, the Bible says that this man will turn with a vengeance because he will be the Antichrist. And he will begin to persecute Israel and the church in a way that has never been done before. And that includes the Holocaust, by the way. It's amazing. It's a a crazy time on earth. And that's what it's called the day of the Lord. It has to do with the judgment of the Lord. And the Bible says that we're spared from God's judgment because of our faith and trust in Christ, so we won't be here for that. Amen? Amen? Amen. We're going to be taken out of here. And so the church here at Thessalonica, they were waiting for his return. Paul had given them this information, and they were waiting for Christ to come back for them. And hopefully our church is similar to that. We wait for the return of Christ. We live in anticipation of Christ's return. I don't know about you, but I'm longing to you know, put on the jetpack and get out of here, or however it works, but I, I can't wait because you're not going to have, you're going to have a glorified body. You're not going to have any aches and pains. Your back's not going to hurt. Your shoulder's not going to hurt. You're not going to have acne. You're not going to have anything. It's, it's going to be a glorified body. It's going to be amazing. And so we long for that day. But we live in, 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 in that future hope. That's what keeps us going as believers each and every day, knowing that Christ will fulfill his promise. He's not a liar. He's not a God who lies. And he will return for his church and for those who are trusting in him. So we look forward to what is coming. But at the same time, I've known some Christians are looking so forward to Christ's coming, all they want to do is sit around and study their navel. They don't want to do anything. Hey, Jesus is coming back. Why do anything? I'm just going to sit here in my easy boy and, and watch church on TV and, and, and listen to Christian music and, and just wait for the Lord to come back. And we can't do that. That's not what he's called us to do. As a matter of fact, Jesus said at the end of the book of Matthew, we're to what? go out into all the world. That's the song we, we sang, facing a task that's unfinished. That task will be unfinished until the last person who is elect by God will be saved here on earth. I don't think that's happened yet because we're still here. I think as soon as that person is saved, we're, we're going to be out of here because there'd be no really reason for the church to be here. But he left us here with a purpose. We can't live in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. We can't live passively here in the present. You know, I mean, some believers, it's just us four and no more. We're just going to sit here in our holy little huddle and do nothing. That's, that's not what the Bible instructs the church to do. We are to be busy about the things of God. We're to be serving him. We're not just to sit around. God has a purpose. He has a plan. He left us here on earth after our salvation for a purpose. I mean, it would have been nice if when you were saved, think the moment you, you gave your life to Christ, he just took you to heaven. That would be great. But he didn't do that. He left you here to struggle with, struggle with your sinful body, with this sinful world. And even though he's given you the word, the Holy Spirit, everything, it's still hard. It's hard to live a faithful Christian life here in this world today. And because we are a people with a great future, 
We can't be a people that's indifferent to the present. It matters what happens in this present age. And so he's transitioning right out of this great discussion that he had about the rapture and the day of the Lord. And now the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he begins, based on what I just told you about all this future stuff, the Apostle Paul does what he, he does so well so often in many of his books. He says, based on what I just taught you, I want you to live this way. And it comes right back down to our practical, everyday Christian living in the church. And in fact, in verse 11, look at this is kind of provides the bridge. He, he tells us there in chapter 5, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. He says the same thing at the end of verse 14. Therefore, or the end of verse uh, uh, 18 of chapter 4. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, what words does he want us to encourage one another? The fact that we're not going to be here for the day of the Lord. That should be a a tremendous encouragement to us. We don't have to worry about coming under the wrath and the judgment of God because Christ is our Savior, and on Calvary, he what? He bore the wrath. He bore the judgment that should have been ours, but he bore it on himself. And so we are protected from that. And so he's telling us, don't be discouraged when you look into the future. But also don't be pathetic, apathetic, I guess would be the word, about the present. There's still things that need to be done. Well, how do we encourage one another? How do we build one another up? How do we respond to this this great message that Paul has given us about our future? He tells us here, and that's what kind of leads us on to verse 12. Notice what he says here. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. This is going to be our text for this morning. And it's, he begins to unfold that, hey, you know what? Because you have this wonderful future, you still have to live with each other in the church. You know, I often quote Charles Swindoll. I think he, he's the one that said it. He said, the church is like a bunch of, of uh, porcupines. You know, the, the closer they get, they start poking each other and they become irritated at each other. You know, that, that's the way the church is. Um, and so he, he wants... He wants us to understand this is a very practical set of instructions that he's going to give the Thessalonians and hence us as a church. It's very practical. It's very straightforward. It's kind of almost in your face, very direct. And you'll notice some of the comments, some of the, the, the verses down further in the text are very short. They're very pithy. He's just like one command after another. Because he knows you shouldn't be just, we shouldn't just be lollygagging around here on earth. And yet, when you look at the church today, the Church of Christ in America especially, unfortunately, they need this kind of instruction. Because it's in a very sad state. There's a lot of unhealthy churches in America. There's a lot of churches that don't understand the power of God. They don't understand the presence of God or the peace of God, the joy of God. They don't experience all the blessings of God that he pours on those who are 
walking according to His will and moving ahead in their, their, their lives, becoming more and more like Christ and less like this world. The world has definitely crept into our churches today. If you don't believe me, just go visit a few. You'll see it all over the place. The country is filled with a lot of busy churches. It's filled with a lot of big churches. But there's a lot of churches in that mix that are very, very unhealthy because they've gotten away from this book. They've gotten away from God's word and they've turned to secular mindset of marketing, whatever it might be. I I heard a uh, a lady one time we were at a luncheon and I asked what she did and she said oh I'm a pastor of marketing at such and such a church I'm like a what I thought what is that pastor of marketing I don't, I don't read that I don't remember reading that in the New Testament another time I was at another church and they were talking and introduced myself to this young man he said oh I'm the pastor of skate I'm the what the pastor of what skate and what's that? He goes, oh, I have a skateboard ministry. I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. I don't know if there's a pastor of skate in the Bible, necessarily. You know, and, and, and they're, they're, they're kind of gyrating all over the place to make their churches filled with programs that will appeal to people and draw the crowds. And every weekend, it's kind of like, who's got the best show on earth? And people go, and they go with the wrong mindset. You should not come to church to be served. You should come to church to serve. That's what we're called to do. We've got to break away from this consumer mentality. And that's very much what it's become today. Well, you know, we'll see what, what this church has got. Oh, they've got a concert. I'll go to this church. Oh, that, next time they have a guest speaker over there, I'm going to go over there. There's no commitment being made to any church whatsoever. That's why here at Grace Bible, we, we believe in church membership. Some people say, well, that's not biblical. We believe it is. Because in the New Testament, they knew who their church was. They knew who they were to minister to. They knew they even counted. You can read several times. There were so many there at this meeting or that meeting. They, they understood that. We don't make a big deal about it. But we do believe that people should be committed to a local assembly of believers. If it's not this church, then another church that's teaching the Bible and is faithful to God's word. But I think that that is a very important commitment. And and we need to remind ourselves of that. So the country is filled with all kinds of churches. One person said this, the church reminded them of Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the storm outside, you couldn't stand the stench inside. (laughs) And I thought, wow, that's so cynical. That's such a kind of a slam on the church, but it's probably true, to be honest. The church, I believe, is the most blessed institute on the earth, above all other, without question, because it's the only one that's built by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and is being built. And that's, that's so much important. I love what Pastor John MacArthur said one time. Someone said, well, what are you doing to build the church? He goes, well, I don't do anything to build the church. It's not my job. And they said, what do you mean? And they said, well, Jesus said that he's going to build his church. I don't want to compete with him. (laughs) And that's a very good mindset to have. It's the only institution on earth that Christ, God, promised 
to eternally bless. Not only that, but he gave the promise that the gates of hell would not overpower it. They wouldn't prevail against it. And a lot of people think, oh, that means that hell won't overrun the church. No, it's just the opposite. It means the power of hell cannot keep people in the church as they go out into the darkness. That's the really understanding of that. A lot of people think that's protective for the church. No. The gates of Hades will not overpower. It means that, you know what? When the church gets ready to go out and to penetrate the darkness, hell can't stop it. That's our mindset. It's not a defensive stance. And so the Apostle Paul was convinced of the significance of the church, so much so that he told his young disciple Timothy in in 1 Timothy 3.15, he referred to the church as the pillar and the support of truth. The pillar and support of truth. Now, with all that being said, we're not saying the church is perfect, right? It, it can't be. Why? Because it's made up of sinners. The, the, the reason the church is difficult is because the church is made up of people. And the last time I checked, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? And so we're all fallen. We're all sinful. We're all imperfect. We all have weaknesses. We all face difficulties. And those are the people that make up the church. Fallen, weak, sinful people. Ken and I often kind of joke with each other. A lot of times we look at our church, Grace Bible Church, as kind of a, a trauma unit, a hospital of sorts. You know, people come in, they come in all banged up, and, and then, you know, we kind of patch them up, and pretty soon they're moving out of the Bay Area again because that's just the transitory nature of the Bay Area. They can't afford it here, and they're moving on. And, you know, to be honest, as a pastor, it's kind of frustrating sometimes because a lot of times you get wonderful families and everything, and they're moving out here, and they're just so excited. They're making more money than they've ever made in their life. But then the day comes, they realize they can't afford to live here, and they've got to move across the bay or, or out of state. A lot of people moving out of state. So it's important that we admit that the church has its faults, Our church has its faults, but I believe we're moving in the right direction. I believe the heart of our church is one that wants to honor the Lord. Some people who are against the church kind of say, well, I don't join the church because there's there's too many hypocrites in the church. And one teacher said, well, there's always room for more. (laughs) Always room for more. Um, And the reason is because redeemed sinners... We have our faults because redeemed sinners within the church were still battling the flesh every day. Um, some members of the church are, are spiritually immature. Some people within the walls of the church, the local church, not the universal church of Christ, because that's the, the, the universal church, the body of Christ, you have to be a believer, but within the walls of the local church, like here at Grace Bible Church, I guarantee you there's people here sitting this morning that are not believers. So you have some of the, the people that are fallen, some of them are battling the flesh, some of them are even unregenerate. They haven't come to Christ yet, and so the church faces challenges. It has to deal with all these problems. So any church you come across is going to have problems. If they tell you they don't, they're lying. <laughs> and that's a real problem. 
People have problems. Leaders have problems. And so, this morning, I want you to, to, when we look at this, this text, it's important that we realize that it's really about relationships. It's about relationships within the local church. And relationships require responsibility. Some of you who maybe aren't married yet, you realize that, wow, if you were ever to get married, there comes a whole other level of responsibility in that relationship. You can't live as a single person and be married. That wouldn't be right. You'd be negating your, your responsibility as a spouse to whoever you married. And so it's important that we realize that the church, even though it's imperfect, it is made up of people, and within the people, we have relationships. There's relationships among church members. There's a relationship between church members and the staff, pastors, whoever it might be. But the church is under continuous, continuous assault. It's under assault from Satan himself, from his demons, from, from his human agents. And yet, even all the assault that comes against the church, we know that we can stand firm in truth because God calls us the body of Christ in the world. He gives us the Holy Spirit to, to dwell within us, to give us the power to live for the Lord. He gives us his word as it instructs us to live out our daily lives. He's even given us spiritual gifts divinely that we use to minister to one another within the body of Christ. And so true believers in the church love and they obey the Lord and sincerely they strive toward greater holiness. They don't just reach a plateau and say, okay, this is good enough. That's never the case in the Christian life. You never arrive until the Lord comes back. (laughs) Then Then you'll ever be with the Lord and you'll be glorified. But until that time... It's a frustrating life, to be honest with you, because there's a goal set out there, be like, be like Christ, be like Christ. And guess what? You're never going to attain that on this side of glory. But we should always be working at it. Look at what he says back in verse 1 of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians there, because he's t- talking about these believers, and he's saying that, hey, they're striving. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you... Re- that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, look at just as you are doing, so he's affirming them, he's saying, hey, you're doing everything right there in Thessalonica. You're doing, doing everything that you possibly can. He says, as you have received this and you're doing this to please God just as you are doing, he ends that verse and he says that you do so more and more. <laughs> he doesn't tell them, oh, you know what? You arrived. You can just relax in your little rocking chair of grace and do nothing now because you're just like Jesus. Nope. He said, even though you've exceeded, you've excelled, there's always more behavior to learn. There's more word to absorb. There's, there's, there's more change that needs to happen in our lives. And so it's not completely without problems, this church, but it is a healthy church. It's a, it's a church that's made up of quality people committed to walking and pleasing God. And you know what? That, that really affirms what we're doing here because I think that's the kind of church we are. We may not have a lot of programs. We may not be you know, blowing the walls out. But you know what? I know the people that make up this body and they're willing to serve. They're willing to grow. They're willing to admit, hey, you know what? We're not all that, but we're trying. 
Spiritual growth is taking place in people's lives. We are moving in the right direction. We're in process. We're moving in the right direction. And Paul kind of unfolds this last section and it really applies to our own church. Look at what he says here several times throughout the book. He says in chapter 1, uh, verse 2, he says, We give thanks for, to God for you all, talking about them, the Thessalonians, making mention of you in our prayers. He was thankful for them. Why? Well, it tells us in verse 3, their work of faith, chapter 1, verse 1, or verse 3, their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope was consistent. See, a lot of the Christian life has to do with consistency. And what we see in believers' lives today is complete inconsistency. You know, there's, there's believers who they'll hear a sermon or something, they'll get all convicted and, oh, you know, I'm going to be there. <laughs> okay. I mean, I walk away going, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. And inevitably, it doesn't happen. Because there's inconsistency. Why is there inconsistency? Because it's not a priority. It's simply that. It's not a priority. I mean, I know that when I had a job and, and my paycheck was basically based on how much time I punched in that little card, I had a lot of motivation to be on time to work. And I even had motivation sometimes to work overtime because I knew it would be reflected in my paycheck two weeks later. And so I was willing to do whatever I could to put as many hours in. Why? Because, and yet somehow, you know, I wouldn't sleep in if I had to work at eight. I wouldn't sleep into eight and just show up to work at nine o'clock. I wouldn't do that. Why? Because it meant something to me. I had a priority. When you have your jobs, in, in, in the secular place, they mean something to you. Probably most of you want to be on time. Most of you want to work hard, want to represent Christ in a positive way in the workplace. You're not, you know, pretending you're sick and going to the ball game and getting caught on the big screen or whatever. You know, you don't want to do that. But, you know, it, it's just crazy. And yet, so many times, our commitment to the Lord, it just seems like, well, he's not here physically to really deal with us, so it's okay. What's well, not okay? So he says there are all these things were consistent. Verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit. You became an example to all believers. See, that's the thing you have to ask yourself as a believer living in this world. Who are you being an example to? And what kind of example are you? Are you an example that somebody looks at you and goes, they're a Christian? I can't believe they call themselves a Christian. Are you the kind of example that somebody looks at you and goes, man, what's different about you? Tell me more. Verse 8 says, the word of the Lord sounded out from you, he told them. In verse 9, he says, you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. In other words, there was a drastic change in these people's lives. They came out of a pagan background and, and they just their life was transformed. Verse 10, it says, you're even waiting for his son from heaven. In other words, you're looking forward to that future glory. Over in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, we constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, look at what he says, you accepted it, not as the word of men, they weren't saying, oh, Paul's word's so great. No, they, they received it as for what it really was, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. He says you became imitators of, 
of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. You endured the sufferings that come at the hands of your own countrymen. You, you, you endure all this. Why? Because they were dedicated. They believed in the faith that they, they spoke. Their faith was real. Their love was strong. Their hope was firm. It was firm in Christ. Down in verse 17, chapter 2, he says they were such a, a beloved church that he wanted to see them. He couldn't wait to see them because he was away from them, remember. And he had tried to come, but he couldn't do it. Verse 19, he says, you're my hope, you're my crown, my joy, my crown of exaltation, he says in verse 19. You're my glory, you're my joy, he says again in verse 20. I mean, these people meant something to Paul. Why? Because they meant something to the Lord. Over in chapter 3, verse 6, Timothy comes back from a visit to Thessalonica because Paul hadn't seen him for a while. And he, Paul says, hey, he brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. Chapter 3, verse 8 indicates that they were standing firm in the Lord. Verse 9 says, what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? They were a good church. They were really a wonderful church, excellent church. They were moving in the right direction. They were, they were in process. But lest their heads get too big with all this Positive speech coming out of Paul's mouth about them and off this pages of this letter to them. Look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 10. Even though all this stuff is true about you, you're great. He says, we still want to come and complete what is lacking in your faith. As good as they were, they weren't there. That's the point. As good as they were, they still had a lot of work to do. You're doing better than you were before, but guess what? You can always do better. You're moving in the right direction, but you can go faster, you can go farther. Now the deficiencies in this church, the spiritual deficiencies in this church, didn't, didn't seem to threaten the basic spiritual life of the people, which means it was a pretty healthy church. It was a pretty healthy church. They weren't fatal mistakes or sins going on in the congregation. But there was still room for growth. Growth. They were truly a, a, a saved church, you could say. And they were being sanctified each and every day, becoming more and more like Christ. They were moving in the right direction of holiness. And they were surrendered to the lordship of Christ. They wanted Christ's way, not their own way. They didn't come up with their own plans and say, okay, this is our plan, this is our agenda. No, they said, what does Christ want us to do? They were also a soul-winning church. They, it says that the, the word of God sounded forth from them. This is a good template for us. Saved, sanctified, surrendered, soul-winning. They were also looking to his coming, his second coming, waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Very noble group, you would say, but they could still do better. They haven't arrived. They weren't perfect. No church is. But you notice, up to this point, 
Paul hasn't mentioned any scandals. He hasn't mentioned any false doctrines, right? I mean, you read the book of 1 Corinthians, right? I mean, we went through that, the letter that he had to write them, and some of it was kind of uncomfortable, frankly, because some of the things that were going, in that, going on in that church were so unholy and not honoring to Christ, he had to really rebuke them in a big-time way, but he doesn't do it here at all. But he did encourage these believers that there was still more sanctification that needed to happen. They could still still excel still more. And so when we come to verses 12 and 13, he begins a kind of a list of direct exhortations, orders you could say, on how they could preserve and grow in their, their Christian walk, how they could persevere and grow in their Christian walk. And so he thought, even though you're, you're really high right now off of all this teaching about Christ coming back for you, I have to bring you back down to earth. He's not here yet. And until he's here, here are some things that you have to fulfill. We have to be willing to be responsible to live holy lives in the present and continue to grow in grace, even though we look forward to the future as Paul returns. And so as we look at this, relationships require responsibility. The first thing he, he shows us here is a couple things. He talks about the leaders in the church and their responsibility toward the church, toward the congregation. And we'll talk about this. We'll kind of, we're kind of introducing this today, so we may not get through all of our points. But there's a certain responsibility in relationships, and here... Today, we want to talk about the leader's responsibility toward the church. And to summarize it, he basically tells us to work hard, um, have charge over the church, admonish the church. Those are the three things that leadership within the church should be doing on an active basis, a daily basis. But he says, it's not just all on the leaders, because the church is made up of a relationship, right? It's like whenever I do any kind of counseling with a couple or whatever, sometimes it'll be one spouse that approaches you, oh, you know, I need counsel. What do you need counsel about? Well, concerning my marriage. Okay, well, if it's a, if it's a woman, when, when can you and your husband meet? Well, he won't come. I said, well, unless he's able to meet, I, I can't really give you any counsel. Well, why is that? Well, why should I just listen to your side of the story? I also want to hear his or vice versa. Right, Because you can't give proper counsel without hearing everything. And so here Paul says, hey, it's not all on the leaders. And so in the following next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at the church's responsibility toward the leaders. And basically to summarize it, it's to know them, esteem them highly in love, and to live in peace with one another. And then in verses 14 to 15, future, it tells us about how we should deal in our responsibility one with another within the congregation. Not so much pastor to congregation, but congregation to congregation. That we should be willing to minister sensitively and, and live lovingly. And so the whole, the whole point of this entire section is, is basically Paul is saying, you know what, God will sanctify, sanctify and he will inspire peace in his people that there may be blamelessness in their lives when Christ returns. And if you look down further in the text of chapter 5, he, he points that out 
there toward the end, verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept, what? Blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to look at this. And so he, he starts off here in verse 12, and notice what he says. He says, we ask you, brothers. Now remember who's, who's writing this. This is who? The Apostle Paul. Do you think he has a little authority? I think so. I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament, for goodness sakes. I mean, he definitely has some authority. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And at times he has to express that authority. But here, he takes kind of a a gentler word with them. He says, you know what, brothers in Thessalonica, you're you're, you're growing, you're doing great, you're wonderful, I'm hearing good news about you, so I want to ask you. He petitions to their, their relationship with one another. And he says, we ask you, brothers. And he, he's kind of saying, you know what, I, I, I say this to you out of love. And these two verses, verses 12 and 13, really speak to the issue that a, a, of a relationship between the pastor and the people. The elders and the people. The sheep and the shepherds. That's really what it's speaking to. And I think that that's very important in any church. Because if you don't have a good relationship between the sheep and the shepherds, guess what? You don't have a good church. There's something going on. You're going to have a lot of problems. There's nothing more devastating to the growth, the spiritual progress of a church than having an unwholesome relationship between the pastor, the elders, and the congregation, between the shepherds and the sheep. You can't have a healthy flock if that's the issue. If, if shepherds on one hand aren't fulfilling their, their proper spiritual responsibility to the sheep, and on the other hand, if the sheep are not fulfilling their proper spiritual responsibility to the shepherd, the shepherds, guess what? The, the church can never be what God intends it to be. So it's just very significant what we'll be talking about over the next several weeks. And so the relationship that we have as elders with the congregation here is, is very crucial to us. And I think over the years, that many years that Ken and I have ministered together here as elders in this church and, and other elders as well, but um, I think... The, the, the worst times in our ministry are times when this relationship was called into question somehow between the pastor and the congregation or the congregation and the elders. Because when there's a breakdown of confidence, when there's a breakdown of trust and love or even affection between sheep and shepherds, when integrity goes out the window, when credibility goes out the window, confidence goes out the window. Trust is gone. Love is gone. Affection is gone. And all of a sudden, everything becomes very critical. And that can devastate the life of a church. And whatever good things a church may be doing, that can just wipe it away in one fail swoop. So, I just want to say, as being here 25 plus years at Grace Bible Church, um, you know, there's been times in, in, in our ministry here at Grace Bible Church where 
we see the lives of some people in this kind of a relationship, they break down. Sometimes we as leaders don't do the right things or whatever it might be. And sometimes you as sheep don't do the right things. And there's a, all of a sudden there's a disintegration in that relationship. And you have to be careful with that. You have to be attentive to it. And I think that that would be really um, the major disappointments that we've ever had in ministry is when those relationships are not right, when those relationships are troubled or whatever. It's just a very traumatizing time for everybody involved. So it's crucial that the relationship between the elders, the pastor, and his flock, their flock, are being healthy. And so uh, in guaranteeing the spiritual progress of the church. If we don't do what we should be doing, and you don't do what you should be doing as a congregation, guess what? It's not going to work. So that relationship is very, very crucial. Uh, I mean, everybody wants healthy relationships, right? I've never met someone that wakes up and says, I just want to have rotten relationships, you know, with my marriage and my kids, and I want the relationships just to stink. You know, you, you want good relationships. Everybody wants good relationships. But sometimes we just assume that these relationships will just happen. Sometimes we just assume that, well, you know, we don't have to, I mean, I did this after I was married. I mean, until um, we went and saw a counselor. I just assumed, well, I married this woman. Why wouldn't she know I love her? I don't have to tell her I love her every day. I mean, she should just know that, right? And you ladies are going, no, no, no. <laughs> You're barking up the wrong tree, Pastor. Well, I learned that. I had to learn that the hard way. You know, that, that sometimes you need to express that, even though you know it factually be true. You have to express this to people over and over and over again. But sometimes we just assume that to be true. And when everything's going right in a relationship, well, everybody's happy, right? But as soon as the bottom falls out, then we start to look at it and we realize, wow, you know what? I really haven't made the investment that I should have in my relationship with my wife or my work or whatever relationship you want to talk about. Because relationships, healthy relationships, entail certain responsibilities. They always will, and they always, they always have, and they always will. And so these relationships, you want them to flourish, but you have to understand there's mutual responsibilities in the relationship. It's not just going to happen on autopilot. This is true of our marriages, our families, and the local church. Healthy churches don't just happen. Healthy churches require both leaders and church members to fulfill the responsibilities. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. Well, what then is the responsibility of the shepherds to the sheep? This is the first point here. And you notice here that he points out, um, he starts with uh, brothers. I thought that was, uh, uh, he said, we ask you brothers and when you really do a um, study of that, it, it happens uh, 60 times in Paul's writings, that word brothers, Adelphos in the original language. And guess what? 27 times out of those 60 that Paul uses this word in all his writings, 27 times it's in First and Second Thessalonians. Amazing. And so you, you say, well, what is the, the, the church? 
the New Testament term. Who, who are the leaders? How does this work? Well, this is what I want to share with you this morning. Because as the Old Testament unfolds, we have to make some identification. Well, well, who are the leaders in the local church? Well, there's several terms that are used in the New Testament for leaders within the church. First of all, the first one, we're probably all familiar with this, is, is elder. Elder, the word elder. And um, it identifies a, a church leader that is spiritually mature, one that is, has godly wisdom. There's, there's spiritual maturity and wisdom in their life. Uh, they're not immature, and I think that that even means they're probably not young age-wise either. They've probably lived a little bit. Uh, and it's used over and over and over again in the New Testament. As the church was being established in the book of Acts, it's, it was a very high priority to make sure that all those churches that they established had elders appointed in them. Men who are characterized by spiritual maturity, by spiritual wisdom, who can lead the church. This is one aspect of leaders in the church. And you find very clear characteristics if you want to know more about that. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, it gives you the specifics of the qualifications for an elder. And their duties are outlined uh, in, those, in those texts. But it's someone who is spiritually mature, spiritually wise. And they are given certain responsibility to lead within the church. So that's one word in the New Testament. Uh, it's where we get the word presbytery. Presbuteros is the word for elder in the original Greek. Secondly, there's another word that's used to describe the leader in, within a church. And that's the word Episcopos, you know, the Episcopal Church. Okay, that's where that word comes from, from that Greek word episkopos. It means overseer. It means overseer. Sometimes in the Old English it's translated bishop. Okay, it's someone who is looking out, overseeing the spiritual welfare of the church. It means to look over, to oversee, to take it all in, take a big view. And it indicates here that the church leader is not only characterized by spiritual maturity and spiritual wisdom, but also they have a, a certain responsibility for spiritual oversight, for spiritual authority. They kind of go together. You find that word used in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, and it describes the word it describes who church leaders are. They are overseers. It's also used in Philippians 1.1 1, 1 and Acts 20.28. 20, Just another facet of being a leader in the church. But there's a third term that's used in the New Testament. And that's the common word that we use a lot of times is pastor. Pastor simply means shepherd. It indicates that the leader in the church is characterized by what? Doing what a pastor does, doing what a shepherd does, spiritually feeding, watching out for the spiritual protection of the congregation. And here you're looking at the duty that he has to feed the flock and protect them from the wolves that want to devour the flock. And trust me, today more than ever, this is very important, is very important. You always have to be able to protect 
spiritually those who have been entrusted under your care. And Ken and I take this very seriously. That's why sometimes people within our congregation will say, well, you know what, I want to I buy these books for, for everybody and give everybody a book or something. And it's like, well, okay, hold on. Let's, let us look at the book first. Because we've gone down that road before. And, you know, they mean well, but sometimes they're not good books. <laughs> it's not something you want your congregation to even read. Now, on the surface, they look harmless. But within the covers, you find certain doctrines that are being taught and things that aren't biblical. And, you know, we want to be biblical in all we do. We're not trying to be nitpicky. But we are very careful and protective of our congregation. That's why if you show up here and, and you say you want to become the member, a member of our church, what do we say? Oh, great. You're a member. No, we don't say that. We say, you know what, there's a process to this. There's a class you can go through. Some of you have signed up. By the way, we're going to be having that in the next coming weeks. So don't grow impatient with us. We're just letting the, the list grow a little bit. If you're interested in joining here as a believer in membership at Grace Bible Church, you can go through a class. We have a class. It meets on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, basically, it's not that long. It's about an hour and a half. And we go everything through everything from the spiritual gifts to the church finances, how everything works. Um, and then after that time, you're given a kind of a questionnaire. And if you want to join the church, you can fill out the questionnaire and it asks you some theological questions. It asks you to write down your testimony because those who are joining the church should be believers. And at that point, Ken and I will read that over and for the most part, unless there's something glaringly wrong, (laughs) you will be welcomed into membership here at Grace Bible Church. But with that, that's not something to be entered into lightly. There's a certain responsibility then, right? We don't want people just to join the church to join the church. I think if you came up to me or Ken and you asked us, well, you know, um, can we join the church? And I think our question would be, well, why? Why do you want to join the church? Where do you want to serve within our church? How do you want to serve? How do you want to use your spiritual gift to edify the body of Christ? Because that's what a church member would do. Well, here, this word pastor looks out for the spiritual feeding, the spiritual protection of those who are part of the congregation. And, and I've had to figure this out the hard way sometimes, but uh, finally the Lord told me uh, after trying to appeal to different invitations by different churches to go to their events and everything and, and try to get together and do something jointly uh, with other churches. And, and, and all that's good sometimes. But God kind of had to tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, you know what? I called you to pastor this church, not the five other churches in Redwood City. You pastor this church. Don't worry about what they're doing. That might sound a little isolationist, but you know what? It's everything I can do just to pastor this church. (laughs) I mean, we got our hands full, Ken and I, so you can continue to pray for us. But this is what we do. And, and we have to protect the body of Christ. And then the fourth term here used, and we'll end here, is the fourth term here is basically, um, it, it, for lack of a better term, leader, those who lead you. Um, it's, a, it's a term that's used throughout the New Testament. You could put the word leader or, or, or chief, <laughs> if that gives you any idea what it means. Um, it indicates that the one who's responsible as an overseer or an elder or a pastor should also have some kind of spiritual discernment, right? Some kind of spiritual guidance 
In other words, they're leading you somewhere. You can assess the the situation. You can move people to a better condition. You can help them on the right path. That's that aspect of that word. That's really what that means. That's the, the leader within the congregation. Now, putting these shepherds with these characteristics in place within a local church is very crucial. It was very crucial in the book of Acts when they appointed elders in every city. You know, a church is not meant to be of just a bunch of believers coming together and having a big, you know, hoopla time singing and clapping hands. That, that there's supposed to be order in the church. And that goes from the structure, the, the way it's the way it's maintained, the way the, the structure of the church works. And unfortunately today, a lot of, a lot of churches have thrown this out. And, and you know, they don't have a pastor preach a sermon on a Sunday. They have a dialogue with the congregation. So they go back and forth. All It's, it's just kind of crazy. You know, I really believe that if this was good enough for the Apostle Paul, if this was good enough for the Old Testament or the New Testament for men to get up and teach the Word of God through portions of Scripture... I think that's, it's good enough for us today as well. We don't have to come up with a new game plan and have drama and skits and all kinds of other things that compete with the teaching time. I remember when I was first here, someone said, well, boy, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a Sunday where we just sang songs? I said, what? Well, it would just be, we could just have a big praise. I said, no, no. If you're not having time in the word of God, you're, you're wasting your time, frankly. You can listen to your praise music at home. You know, we're here to grow as a congregation. We're here to learn about the things of God. And that's our responsibility to make sure that not just me, but whoever stands behind this pulpit is bringing you truth from God's word. By the way, quick commercial. Kainoa is going to be teaching on Wednesday night. He's going to be teaching our Bible study on Wednesday night. You can be praying for him be encouraging for him to show up encourage him as he teaches us the word of God see that's a big responsibility it's something that we don't take lightly and so we have to make sure that we maintain our spiritual maturity that we're spiritual spiritually wise that we're leading people our congregation in the truth of the word of God now what was interesting when I was doing this study and getting ready, I noticed this one thing, because there's no mention of elders here in the book of First Thessalonians. Uh, there's no mention of overseers. There's no mention of pastors. There's not even mention of this third word, leader. But he does say in verse 12, he says, respect those who labor among you and are what? Over you in the Lord. In the Lord. Now think about it. This church is how many months old? Probably maybe six months old. At best. It's a young congregation. And most of the people that make up the congregation, guess what they came out of? They came out of pagan worship. So they're not really going to be people that are on your top ten list for elder. You know? Because they're not going to have a lot of spiritual wisdom. They're not going to have a lot of spiritual maturity. They're brand new believers, for goodness sakes. So what does Paul do in this situation? 
What, where do the, their elders come from? Well, I think that's one reason why Paul and Timothy and Silas are there. <laughs> They're providing some help for them to get established. He wants them to know that, you know what, it's okay. These men will grow in the relationship with the Lord and with others. And, you know what, we're here just to provide oversight in this time of absence because you don't really have anybody among you. But apparently there was somebody who, who at least began to rise to some kind of a leadership because they were over the other folks there in verse 12 it says. They were over them. And so maybe these are men who Paul and Silas and Timothy led to the Lord themselves. And you know we all grow at different rates, right? I mean there's some people who who are a Christian two weeks, and you think, wow, they've read so much. They talk to you, and they know more than you do sometimes. Like, wow, what, how have you done this? You know, I've just been reading everything I can find about Christ. And they just grow and grow and grow in a very short period of time. Okay? And there's other people that take a longer time. That's okay. All fruit in its season, the Bible says. But here, maybe some of these guys had some, you know, certain significance, and they were, they were just... Trained by Paul to some degree to put them in charge of, of the others. And see, this is where maybe some of the problem arose. Think about it. If you get a young congregation, a congregation with a bunch of believers that's brand new in Christ. Remember how you were when you first came to Christ? I don't know if you were like me, but I mean, I wanted to win everybody to Jesus. And I thought I was like, this is, this is God's answer. You know, I am, I am the one. I am the appointed apostle. And, you know, I'd go out and witness to my family and tick them off. And they thought I was nuts. Most of my friends thought I was crazy. Why? Because you're just so on fire for the Lord. Why? You have all that zeal and no what? No wisdom. None. <laughs> you don't know how to do this, but you're so excited. You're just going to go do it anyway. You know, it's better to ask for forgiveness and permission so you just share whatever you want to share you're the kind of people that you know I was the kind of person you know the, the, the holiday dinners and stuff it's like oh okay we gotta listen to this you know, he's gonna want to pray for the food he's gonna want to you know that, that's just the way it goes right well maybe they had some people like that in their church and maybe when Paul pulled a couple of these men aside and said hey you know what I'm gonna kind of just loosely put you over the rest of these people because I think you really have it going on spiritually. The other ones may be pointing their finger, why are you picking him? Right, because they're immature, they don't know. And so maybe that was going on. We don't know what was going on, but it wouldn't have been easy because these people came out of a pagan background. All of a sudden, Paul's kind of giving them a kind of a, a title there in the church, giving some responsibility. But they, they've never had this before. They were all very young Christians. So that probably created a little bit of spiritual issues within their church. But I think it's important to, to realize that only, only the Holy Spirit can raise up shepherds in the church. Only the Holy Spirit. It doesn't happen because you're popular. It doesn't happen because, you know, you're good in your business or you're good with finance. Oh, no, that guy's got, boy, he's really good with finance. Let's make him an elder. No. We're not self-appointed people. There are those in the scripture, like Diotrephes, who was self-appointed, who loved to have, it says, the preeminence. He loved to be seen by people. He just couldn't wait 
No, elders in the biblical church are not appointed by popular vote. We don't vote for elders here. The elders appoint elders. And the way we appoint elders is when someone who qualifies as an elder comes to us and says, you know what, God is working in my heart. I want to serve as an elder. God has given them a desire to serve. They've called them. It's a calling. It's not a title. It's not a position. It's a calling. Maybe God, some of you men here today, is is working in your heart. I mean, let us know. It's not like we're just going to appoint you an elder tomorrow. But maybe you're interested in how the church works, and maybe you have certain gifts and abilities that you could help Ken and I. We'd be more than happy to include include you in our elders' meetings. You can give us information. You can do it. And over the years, we'll see that progress. And eventually, maybe God will call you to be an elder. But the congregation affirms the calling of the elders whom the elders appoint. So it's not just us picking our little band of merry men. If someone comes to us and says, we'd like to be an elder in the church, okay, let's consider that. We put your name in the bulletin for a month. Hey, Joe Schmo wants to be an elder in your church. Congregation, what do you guys think? Nobody gives any negative feedback. If everybody thinks, hey, this is a good, yeah, that would be great. And we pray about it and may come to a point in time where we appoint that person as an elder. And then we have a business meeting in the church and we say, you know what, We've, we want to appoint Joe Schmo as an elder. Nobody has any issues with him. Do you affirm that decision by the elders? So it's not some back door, closed door thing. It's open wide for everybody to see. Because when you become an elder, your life <laughs> kind of ends as you know it. You know, I mean, you're, you're open for all kinds of criticism then, and, uh, and, but you're also open to a whole lot of blessing as well as the Lord uses you. And so he says, we ask you brothers to respect those. And then he also, and we'll, go, we'll get into this next week, he says the, the responsibility of the, the elders are to work diligently, to have charge over the church, and to admonish the church. And um, as we get into that, you'll begin to understand that it's not just a, a lighthearted thing that you should um, desire. It's something that, that basically will take every fiber of your being, every bit of commitment you have, to make sure that you're doing what's right before, before the Lord. Because these are his people, right, that we're overseeing, that we're in entrusted with. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and his care for those in Thessalonica. And Lord, we ask that you would give our own church uh, men who would be willing to step up to the plate and feel that call of God upon their lives uh, to serve you in this fashion. Um, Lord, I know we have men here who desire to serve you more, and I pray that they would be very prayerful about these things. And Lord, I know that... um, as you see fit, you will raise men up and, um, to fulfill your calling. And, and Lord, we pray for any here today who may not know you. Maybe if there's one here or one that's listening to the, the live stream or on the app, Lord, that they, uh, maybe they don't know you personally. They, they never, never trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. Lord, they don't know what it means to be forgiven. They don't know the joy of forgiveness. And Lord, uh, to be honest, they're, they're not really looking for Jesus to come back. Because 
in that state, he would be coming back not as your Savior, but as your judge. And so I pray that if there's any here today who is interested in the gospel of Christ, how you can put your faith, your trust in Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin. It's not based upon what you do. It's based upon what he has done for you. And when you're willing to to trust him with your eternal soul, and you're saying, yes, Jesus, I have sinned and I need forgiveness. I want to put my faith in the work that you did on Calvary. You died for me. You paid for my sins. I want to live my life for you now. That's a prayer that Jesus will, will answer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And for us believers, I just pray you'll encourage us, that you'll encourage us in the area of thanksgiving, being thankful for our church and, and both congregation and those who lead us and guide us. And Lord, we pray that you would just um, continue to bless our church as we're faithful to your word. And Father, we pray also for the food across the way, that you bless that to our bodies as well, as well in our fellowship. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll close with one last song.